Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today it is Wednesday, and it is July 9th of 2014. And uh, today our guest is Dr. Bernadette Pauly of the School of Nursing of the University of Victoria in British Columbia. And she's going to be talking about various topics, uh, homelessness, uh, housing first, on various harm reduction topics. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge and lay let support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Bernadette Pauly, is with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Hello, Bernadette. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for uh, the invite for the show. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with harm reduction. Um, That's a a story I love to tell. Um, Currently, I'm a scientist as well as a in the School of Nursing, a scientist at the Center for Addictions Research of British Columbia, which is a provincial um, research center around substance use. Um, And how I got there really started about eight years ago. Um, And I was working on access to healthcare issues for people who were facing problems with substance use. And my background had been as an emergency nurse uh, working in an emergency room, and as when people were coming in, um, I could see how differentially uh, people who were using substances of all kinds were often being treated. And you know, my background as a nurse, my code of ethics says, you know, people have a right to be re- treated with respect, with dignity, with care. And so for me, there was really a disconnect between um, what was fair and just and and how people should be treated and and then treating people differently and and particularly around the area of of substance use. So when I went uh, to do my PhD, this is the area that I wanted to look at and, and, you know, discovered, of course, um, a lot of research around societal attitudes towards substance use, how we tend to blame people for substance use versus understanding that substance use is often um, particularly problematic substance use is, is a consequence of conditions that, that people are living in um, and, you know, they're coping and, and making choices based on their life circumstances. And so um, that really led me into, you know, looking at some of the challenges of, of access to health care around for people who had uh, problems with substance use, they were struggling with housing issues, there may have been mental health issues. So I was really looking at um, their access in community health care clinics or, or primary care clinics. And what emerged out of that sort of very first piece of research um, from working with nurses and, and physicians in those clinics was the importance of, of harm reduction as um, both an approach, the way in which um, they would develop relationships and and relate with people, but also as a specific strategy to reduce the harms associated with substance use. And and I think, you know, it really was the very pragmatic understanding that substance use, um, you know, we're not we don't need to blame someone, we don't need to judge them, um, we don't need to change them. What we need to do is develop a relationship and make sure that we're, as a healthcare provider, um, providing as safe uh, an environment as possible. And so that's really how I got started in the field. And I will be honest, I when I came into doing that research, I hadn't really... I wasn't really even aware of how much had already been going on in the field of harm reduction for many, many years um, because, you know, it was really wanting to look at um, 
access to healthcare that sort of stimulated the research. And so that's sort of what started me on, on looking at that and then a number of studies um, that followed that. Okay, one thing I see a lot, um, well, this is my opinion. I'm going to run past you and see what you think of it. I see a lot of our prevention programs um, out there. Uh, they work by stigmatizing drug users. They, they paint drug users as these demons and monsters, and if you ever use drugs, you're going to turn into this horrible monster too. And you know, they, they work by, I, well, I mean, what they do is promote stigma. I don't want to say they work by promoting stigma because I don't think that they're effective, but I think that we have a huge amount of stigma around anyone that uses substances, um, and, and not everybody that uses substances is addicted to substances. And, you know, there's a move I see that says, let's destigmatize the recovered substance user, the person that stopped, but there's no, I don't think you can do that until you destigmatize everybody that uses substances. Yeah, I mean, I think very practically, um, substance use is a feature of our society. And it's, it's something that, you know, many people use different types of substances, legal, illegal um, substances. And so it's a feature of our society. And, and I think Part of what you're pointing to, Ken, is that certain types of substance use and certain people um, are do get stigmatized because we don't stigmatize even the use of illegal substances the same across the population. Like we don't necessarily stigmatize people with lots of wealth and resources for a use of an illegal substance, yet if you're poor and you're using, you know, an illegal substance, that's where some of the, the stigma and, and discrimination come, comes in. So, uh, you know, we've got this issue about how we kind of unfairly apply these judgments to different people. And there's a, a little body of literature around what's called poverty stigma. And, and some of the things that I've looked at is how do these different types of stigma kind of pile up and unfairly kind of discriminate towards some people more than others. Um, the other sort of issue that you're raising is around, you know, particularly you'll hear related to youth, um, you know, wanting to stigmatize substance use as a prevention strategy. And just very recently, um, uh, a research article came out that looked at pre prevention programs and basically debunked this idea that if you, you know, stigmatize drug use, you'll prevent youth from initiating drug use and actually found that, that that's not actually the case and that, in fact, what you're doing is you're unfairly creating harms um, for people who do use substances because you're adding to that stigma. So you can think of it like, you know, kind of unintended consequence. And so, you know, I think that's why I've been so um, drawn to the harm reduction concept and, and strategies because it works at destigmatizing and, and really um, looking at substance use as, as a feature of our society and accepting that it goes on and that as a nurse, I want to keep people safe um, and that, can, that includes, you know, preventing the harms of, of substance use and, and that would be whether it's problematic or not. So I think there's a couple of really important issues there that you've raised. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there um, do you think that there are good strategies for prevention? Uh, what might they be? Um, in terms of of prevention, and I mean, I think we're talking about two different kinds of prevention. We're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, we're talking about prevention in terms of uh, people not using. Um, if we're talking about prevention in youth, we might be talking about uh, prevention of, of not initiating use. So there's prevention of use, which is one kind of issue, and then there's prevention of harms of use, which is, 
you know, what we've been talking about in terms of, of harm reduction. So um, if you look at the prevention of harms of use, we've got, as you as you and many people know, an arsenal of, of really good evidence-based effective strategies. And we could go into, you know, each of those in detail if it's, if it's harms of injection drug use, if it's harms of, of um, you know, um, other, other types of, of use that, that, you know, like low-risk drinking lines. It, that's an example of, of a prevention strategy um, for for alcohol use, recognizing that you know many people in society do drink alcohol. So how do we prevent the harms of that through, for example, low risk drinking line, guidelines would be a kind of a general population prevention strategy. Um, so I think you know we could go quite a bit in detail in the prevention of of that and a lot of evidence. And that's the part where I probably have the most sort of background in terms of prevention of use, um, and again, I'm going to sort of focus in on use, I think we know uh, definitely what doesn't work. Um, there's been good evidence to show that, you know, some of the school-based programs don't work. Um, in our center, the Center for Addictions Research, um, we have a whole uh, group of people that are working on a program called iMinds, which is about drug education in the schools, and it's really focused on um, responsible decision-making and, and getting youth to really think about you know, why or why not would they use substances and what would be the situations. Um, so, um, you know, we've got, if we, and it also depends too which substances we're looking at because, you know, when you look at tobacco, very good yeah. evidence around prevention of use of tobacco, you know, through things like um, taxation and, you know, policy approaches in British Columbia, um, for example, where I'm located, we've had some very effective uh, strategies around tobacco, reducing tobacco use per se. So I think we need, you know, when we talk about this, it's, it's important to look at what is the substance we're talking about, um, what, who are the population groups that we're talking about, and then looking at either the prevention of use or the prevention of, of harms as kind of a two-pronged um, kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unrealistic to think that uh, teenagers never going to have a couple beers uh, through their teen years until they reach the drinking age. You know, they're going to they're gonna experiment, you know, with a little alcohol or with a little marijuana, maybe smoke a cigarette or two. You know, that's realistic but you know there's a difference between having a couple beers you know when you're 16 and drinking a quart of vodka every day when you're 16 uh, in your teenage years which is really bad but you know it, it's I mean it's unrealistic to have uh, expect zero use for all teenagers mm -hmm. well and I think you know what you're what you're talking about is is again that range there's a wide range of substance use from you know a recreational kind of relaxation you know one or two drinks to you know the other end where where things do become problematic um, and I think most of where I focus in is is on the you know groups of, of people who you know substance use has in most cases become problematic and then you know focusing on on how do you prevent the harms of of that kind of use for a group of people because you know that's the kind of use that's been much more highly kind of stigmatized and has also um you know obviously has has implications for health and safety of of the individuals as well as as others in their lives Mm -hmm. I'm just going to um, say one more thing on this topic, and then I want to move on. But uh, I don't know if you have the same laws in Canada. I know in the United States, um, you know, there's some parents that have wanted to host the parties for the, for the youth, and it's illegal in the U.S. You know, if a parent uh, hosts a party where um, their children and their children's friends under age 
are doing underage drinking, you know, they say it's a good idea because then they don't have to drive. They're not driving around. They're not killing each other on the highways. But the parents will be put in prison for that. They'll be arrested and put in jail for that here. Um, is that the same in Canada? Yeah, we've got definitely the same kinds of issues because, you know, you would be considered it's illegal to supply alcohol to a minor. So if someone's under the the legal drinking age, which for us in British Columbia would be 19 years of age, um, that definitely would be um, uh, uh, a violation of of the current current laws. Um, And I think, again, there's kind of a, a range of kind of discussions around around this in terms of, you know, how parents approach um, discussions about alcohol, how they approach discussions about illicit substance use, um, and how they they manage that, which is which is I think a much bigger kind of issue in terms of of you know the importance of of parents talking with with their kids about it, um, you know, and then what kind of situations. Um, do they, you know, do you have to sort of, um, you know, clearly it's one thing to provide, you know, alcohol to your own child, but someone else's, I mean, you would be providing alcohol to someone who's who's underage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the U.S., it's not even whether you provide the alcohol. If you provide the space for them and let them bring their own alcohol, you will be liable um, which is just, to me, it's crazy, you know, because it, it stops them from driving, which is the, probably the biggest killer for teen drinkers is that, you know, they, they have to drive home because, you know, they don't have any place to drink that's safe. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, what you're really getting at is is the kinds of challenges that we have when we talk about, you know, preventing harms and you know, what some of the the tensions are for sure. I mean, if we sort of look at um, um, illicit drug use, for example, um, we, a few years ago, we did a a paper for the Canadian Nurses Association. So this would be kind of a parallel professional association for all nurses in Canada, similar to the American Nurses Association. And... um, you know, really laid out for healthcare providers um, where the policies were in terms of their role as a healthcare provider, and recognizing that um, you know nurses have have commitments to to promote health and safety of people that they care for, treat them with respect and dignity, um, provide accurate information and so you know there was some thinking among among nurses um, at that time that you know to provide someone with uh, clean supplies um, for for injecting could result in in criminalization of the healthcare provider and it's never ever ever been been and this is a completely different issue than than the one you're speaking you know we were speaking of earlier Mm -hmm. but you know within my own profession you know the kinds of tensions um that people have have had to navigate around around criminalization um and as i said this particular issue um on illicit substance use was never um hasn't been tested in in a court of law, but I think people really with the HIV movement really started to see that the, you know, provision of clean supplies and the prevention of HIV as a public health issue was much, um, was of considerable importance and, and as opposed to what would happen if someone was caught in possession of, of, um, uh, syringe, for example. So, I mean, I, I'm just illustrating this as the kinds of tensions I think that we, you know, in our different positions, um, are navigating and, and recognizing and knowing what the law says, and then looking at that in relation to the harms, which is, you know, why I think there's so much of 
ethics and values and societal attitudes um, that are involved in when, when that make these kinds of situations complex. Mm-hmm. Well, Canada, at least, it's uh, in terms of syringe exchange, syringe access is uh, very good in Canada. In the United States, you know, it's still all state by state. Uh, there's no federal funding. There's no federal provisions for it. And every state gets to make their own laws. So in Texas, you still go to prison for possession of a syringe. So I have huge admiration for the people doing uh, the underground syringe exchange programs in Texas. Um, you know. Yeah, I, you know, when it is interesting because I think people do look at Canada and say, you know, it is very different than the United States. And, and you know, I mean, you've had issues where needle and syringe exchange has been banned and, you know, as you just illustrated, you know, is actually having possession of a syringe is, is illegal. So, uh, but I just want to make the point that in Canada, even in Canada where I, you know, we've had very, up until a point, we've had quite favorable um, support of, of harm reduction, that we have very unequal distribution of harm reduction services like needle and syringe exchange throughout the country. Um, and it also applies to distribution of crack supplies, safer crack kits. Um, we have extremely um, variable abil- availability and distribution of those services. And, and I'll just try to sort of sketch for you a bit. Um, because this relates very much to kind of our policy discussion, is that, you know, in um, the late kind of, oh, I'm trying to think it was about 2007, we had a, a federal, a very significant federal shift. We um, went to a, we had a four pillars policy approach, which included harm reduction as part of our response to drug use issues in the country. So there was good kind of federal um, support for that. And then um, we had the introduction of what was called the anti-drug strategy, the national anti-drug strategy, and harm reduction was removed as a pillar. So we've had about eight seven to eight years where the fe- the federal policy environment has been very um, unfavorable and unsupportive of harm reduction. Then we have provincial policy across the country that is, again, quite variable. So I'm just going to give British Columbia as, as the example because that's the province that I live and work in. At the provincial level, we have extremely favorable harm reduction policy. Um, We have clear, we have what's called um, a harm reduction community guide, which clearly lays out the role that communities have to play in harm reduction. And and we have federal government, you know, we could stack them up and they'd probably be, you know, six to eight inches of of policy documents that that really lay out at the provincial level um, the support for harm reduction. But if we even take and just take BC as a case example, then if we start to look at, well, what's really going on in BC? We've got great supportive harm reduction policy. If we look at our cities, um, I live in the city of Victoria, and across the water, you know, what would we be? I'm just trying to think what we would be in miles. I was going to say we're about 35 kilometers away, so um, whatever that is in miles, not that far. Um, you know, about we've got 20. Vancouver. Who? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I've I've forgotten my uh, measurement systems. Um, in Vancouver, we've got supervised injection sites. Um, we've got Insight. We've also got the Dr. Peters Center. Uh, we've got managed alcohol programs happening. Um, we've got a range of uh, very robust sort of harm reduction strategies and distribution of supplies. Um, in our city of Victoria, a, you know, large urban center, capital of British Columbia, um, we have o- we actually in 2008, um, the only fixed site needle exchange was closed, and and we actually looked at the impact of that and how it, you know, reduced people's access not just to supplies but to other types of services as well. And so, 
you know, we have a quite, we don't have any supervised injection. Um, we clearly have, you know, the similar kinds of needs um, for those services. Um, we've had some increase in secondary distribution of supplies, but we do not have within our, our city the same kind of favorable environment because even though we're in the same province, which is as the same province, when it comes to the actual, you know, setting up of the services, it depends on, you know, um, regional kinds of, of policies. Um, and then if we look to rural, more rural areas, um, we just have a deficit of services in those areas. Um, and again, that may be regional policy, it may be resource driven. Um, so, you know, even in a country like Canada, which is, has had very favorable policy federally until about the last eight years, that really has impacted what's happened across the country, even where we have very, you know, favorable policies in, in provinces like, like British Columbia. So, I mean, I just wanted to give you a bit of a sketch of, of the Canadian um, landscape because although it's, it's different than, than the U.S. and we don't have the same kinds of, you know, restrictions um, in place, there are definitely huge variations between um, geographic locations in terms of harm reduction services. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to ask you a little bit about uh, Housing First. And, you know, the, we used to have uh, housing, the abstinence first, you were going to be rewarded if you were abstinent, you would be rewarded if you were homeless with housing, and uh, it didn't work out so well. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so in, and I'll just maybe sort of give the, the picture in Canada, I think you're probably many people would be aware that we've got one of the um, biggest studies that's ever been done going on around Housing First um, that was sponsored by the Mental Health Commission of Canada called the At Home Chez Soi Project. And it, the focus of that was Housing First for people with um, mental illness because, you know, the Mental Health Commission of Canada really recognized and advocated that, you know, the deinstitutionalization of people with, with mental illness and, and the increase of numbers of people on the streets with mental illness was, was a huge issue. And so in, in Canada, uh, and I would say across the country, you know, where communities are looking at at um, addressing homelessness, um, they've really focused on housing first as a strategy. Um, in our work, um, what we noticed was that with all of the focus on, on mental illness, there hadn't really been much focus in, in housing first on, on substance use. And when you look at the principles of housing first, um, one of the key principles of Housing First is that you don't have to be free of drugs and alcohol. You don't have to be abstinence. We're actually saying Housing First means that you have a right to housing and you have a right to permanent housing um, regardless of, of what your substance use is. And so one of the, the key concepts in, in Housing First, although it's not always quite this clearly named, is harm reduction. And so um, we, I think, are really at, at the beginning of looking at how do we integrate harm reduction into housing, um, into a housing first model. And, and it's not a philosophical problem, it's a practical problem. Um, and what I mean by that is I think philosophically, you know, anyone who's doing housing first gets that people have a right to housing. But when it comes to the practice of it, it's not just a matter of saying, here's the keys to your apartment. Um, you know, here you go. You can do, you know, I mean, you, it is your place. I guess you can do whatever you want. But it's not like I can just ignore the fact that, oh, you know, you're, you're using substances and, there's actually so much, and this goes back to our earlier conversation, there's so much that we know that we can do to prevent the harm. So then the question becomes, you know, how 
do we make available and integrate so that people not only can can be in their housing, but they can have um, access to services of their choosing, including harm reduction services. So, um, you know, it's really, I think, um, been important and, and exciting to see some of the things that have been happening um, at, for example, uh, Seattle 1811 East Lake, where, you know, they their housing was for people with um, severe alcohol dependencies and homelessness, and they were, you know, how was that working? In Canada, um, my colleague uh, Tim Stockwell and our team at the Centre for Addictions Research have just, um, are about one year into a national study in Canada where we're looking at managed alcohol programs to address the problem of of severe alcohol dependency and homelessness. And so, you know, the managed alcohol would be an example, a harm reduction strategy that that could be um, integrated into into housing first. So um, we can talk a lot more about managed alcohol and that aspect of housing first. Um, so if you want to, Ken, but uh, maybe let me know where what you want to discuss next. Sure. I remember looking a couple of years ago, I saw that there were a couple of wet houses in Canada. I think there was one in Ottawa and maybe one in Toronto. Yeah. So um, there are currently um, approximately five formal programs. Um, Ottawa actually has two sites. They have um, a site that's in a, in a shelter and they have a site that's um, more for people that are in the program longer term. And I think what's unique about kind of the Ottawa programs is that people can come into the managed alcohol program in, in the shelter and they can get stabilized. Um, and, you know, once they kind of get stabilized, they can, they can make a choice, you know, is, is am I going to stay in a managed alcohol program for a long term? Um, am I, you know, want to get a place on my own? What is it? And so, you know, from that shelter-based program, they may go in a variety of directions um, with their lives. Um, and then the other program they have is, is a, um, a longer-term residential housing program for people who are, uh, you know, the option for them is to, to be in longer-term housing with a managed alcohol program. Um, Toronto has a program as well. Um, and then in addition to that, um, Hamilton has had a pro – now, those, those two programs that, that you mentioned are the oldest two programs. And uh, they've been running for, thinking, Ottawa is probably well over 10 years and Seton House is older than that. Um, Hamilton has a program which is about seven years old. Um, and they provide a program for very similar. The programs, I think, evolved a lot over over the seven years, as as several of them have, um, to really provide people with, um, you know, the opportunities and and options to get to um, manage drinking in a different way, um, in a way that is less harmful. And then, um, in addition to that, Thunder Bay has started a program. Their program's only one year old, and that's a program um, that we've worked with um, and, you know, produced an evaluation of their program. We've had really positive findings from that program in terms of uh, preventing harms of substance use, people experiencing much fewer acute social and chronic harms, um, reduced hospital use, reduced police contacts. Um, and uh, then the other program is there is a program in Vancouver, which is a couple of years old. Um, and again, we've worked with um, that program as well in terms of doing a pilot evaluation and seeing improvements in, in people's, um, seeing improvements in terms of uh, preventing harms of, of drinking um, because part of of the harm for sometimes people in a, in a managed alcohol program is related to use of illicit substance illicit alcohol sources of illicit alcohol as well as as been drinking so those are kind of the the five programs now there are other um, 
less kind of formalized programs operating throughout the country. Um, in some cases, it might be, you know, a more individual program where, where an individual or two or three individuals are put on, you know, a, a managed alcohol regime. So that's kind of where we're at. There are internationally, there are definitely programs in, in Australia that I'm aware of. Um, and, you know, we've got all kinds of really interesting um, variations on on sort of managed alcohol programs. And there's a really interesting one um, that I think got a international attention in um, Copenhagen, uh, where no, sorry, not Copenhagen, Amsterdam, where, you know, they, um, there was a group who were in the park and, you know, they came up with a program and they said, you know, what about cleaning the park and helping to keep the park clean and in return, you know, they get a, uh, I think it's beer in the morning, beer at lunch, beer at night, and another one um, in the evening as well as some money and some tobacco. And so, I mean, that's a very different kind of program than, say, what I've been describing, which are residential programs. So that's kind of the lay mm-hmm. of the land. And, you know, they all operate quite differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just uh, reminding me um... – yeah, I heard about the program in Amsterdam. Um, when I was living in Japan for uh, several years, I knew some. I well, I knew one fellow who was a very severely alcohol dependent, um, but he had a job uh, with the railroad, cleaning up toilets in the railroad, and it wasn't any sort of program. But you know, Japan when I was there in the 80s, they had like 99% employment. And it didn't matter if you, you were alcohol dependent, you could still be placed in some sort of employment where you could uh, earn your money to buy your booze and pay your rent. Um, nothing, you know, high risk, of course, but something of that order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the Amsterdam program is is a good example um, of that, you know, of a of a program that's saying, and I mean, I think we have some really good parallels um, in terms of what we would call in Canada a peer run harm reduction programs, um, which is often employs people with past or current histories of of illicit drug use to provide outreach services. Um, And increasingly, we've got a movement across Canada to employ peers in working in in substance use services. Um, And I think recognizing that um, they have experience, they have knowledge, um, they're able to readily relate um, to other people in, in the program and so valuing um, that kind of knowledge. So I think that's been really interesting because it's not sort of just any job. It's actually a job in which they have particular expertise um, as well. So I think that's kind of another um, facet of, of the employment piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. In uh Places like New York City, too, or San Francisco, uh, you know, peer-delivered syringe exchange is uh, pretty developed. Uh, so, you know, we have the same thing in the U.S. in, in a couple of cities, in a few places. Uh, not all over the country, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, we've, where I live in Victoria and, and certainly in Vancouver, um, you know, the health authorities uh, which run, you know, which fund the harm reduction services have, um, I think, really been very proactive in recognizing the unique role that, that peers have in being able to connect and, and, inter- and, and relate to their peers. And, and part of it came out of, for sure, the HIV movement in which, you know, there was a recognition that that if you want to get supplies and services to people to prevent HIV, probably some of the best people to do that are peers because, you know, they understand the culture and they understand how best um, to have this happen. And, um, you know, so that's been in, 
you know, in the injection drug use provision of services. Um, and certainly we've had, as I said, in Victoria and Vancouver, lots of um, support for peers to do outreach um, and to provide clean supplies and services, provide education, peer-to-peer um, -peer education. Um, and I think, you know, I've noticed in, in our work in doing the um, alcohol harm reduction, um, you know, there is some engagement uh, starting with peers and recognizing, you know, the importance of peer-to-peer of -peer support. And I think what's different about this, it's, you know, we have lots of areas of healthcare, for example, where we have peers who, who support peers, um, often on a volunteer basis. Um, you know, whether it's someone with cancer who has had the experience of cancer talking to someone. I think what's important in terms of, of, of peers who are, are doing harm reduction strategies and outreach and peers is that they are supported and valued um, for their knowledge. And so they're actually being paid um, for their time and work because for many of them, um, they would be not able um, to do it on a volunteer basis because of their um, financial circumstances. And so, you know, they would be, so I think it's an important kind of um, peer movement in terms of recognizing people's expertise and recognizing um, that that expertise is highly valued, and especially in a society where it hasn't been highly valued. In fact, as we talked at the very beginning, Ken, it's been stigmatized, right? Um, mm -hmm, so I think mm -hmm. that's an important distinction in, in kind of the um, peer work. And, you know, um, we've had some exciting things, I think, happen in Canada around around um, peers, uh, organizations developing, connecting together, and advocating on behalf of their peers. And, and I think that's a very important part of the harm reduction um, approach. Well, it's really huge, I mean, to have a purpose in life. You know, you suddenly, instead of just being this, this junkie that's despised by everybody, you uh, have this purpose to go out, hey, I'm an HIV prevention worker. I'm helping people you know, prevent HIV by going out and teaching them about safe injection, distributing clean syringes, and, you know, having that purpose and having that, you know, self-value, you know, really helps people to get motivated, and it's a big piece of um, deciding to uh, maybe stop drug use, maybe to reduce drug use, maybe to, uh, you know, get it under control, and... It, so that's, uh, that's uh, something else. You know, the, the myth is that there's no controlled, no controlled opiate use, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, I, I think in terms of, and I've worked with one peer organization for people who use illicit drugs for about eight years, and um, you know, I've had incredible opportunities to to learn from them and to to get a better understanding of of sort of what does what does the peer work mean and 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 you know how important it is in terms of recognizing and valuing you know the expertise that people have to offer because as you know we said earlier it's often been not recognized and it's been dismissed mm -hmm. and you know um it, it is interesting because i think one of the myths has been that you know it would trigger people to be around, you know, let's say they are, um, are uh, you know, around. They are going to be around people who are actively using and and so on. Is that going to trigger people um, if they've kind of are at a different point in their life? And I think what I've seen is that um, when someone is a peer harm reduction worker they take very seriously that this work is is in support of their peers and and for their peers and that and that the focus is on reducing harms and you know we've done some just sort of 
very small scale kind of um, evaluations of some of the programs um, here and found that actually use much less and use much more safely when they're working in harm reduction. So in fact, they're not triggered by it. In fact, it's, it's you know, because there's an emphasis on health and health promoting behaviors. You've got people saying your work is valued. Um, that has implications obviously for, for self-esteem and, and confidence. And so I haven't seen it just in my experience, and it's you know certainly not full-scale research, that it has that impact of triggering. And I think while there are some people who say, I can't be around drug use um, because I'm trying to get clean, then those are not the people who are going to be the peer workers, right? I mean, I think they, mm-hmm. they will self-select, right? If you say, where I need, I mean, it's just like any of us. We we say, you know, I need, I need to live in a neighborhood that is super, or I need to live in a house that's super quiet, so I can't be in, you know, that apartment building off of the main street, right? Mm-hmm. We make that choice to live in that apartment, or, or I can't work in a job that's like, you know, there's some jobs that we, neither of us are going to work in. Um, and I think the same way some people will identify and say, yeah, I can actually be a peer. I can be a harm reduction worker. I'm, I'm not triggered by that. In fact, you know, it, it is very health promoting for me to be able to, to do this. It's a good work. And I think for other people, they'll identify that that's not where I want to be um, because I am going to be triggered. So um, I think that that's how I see it is, in terms of my observations um, over the years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned the reductions in use, and I'm going to take that back to the wet housing thing. Um, you mentioned very briefly illicit alcohol. I know what you're referring to largely that the people drinking mouthwash, Listerine, uh, rubbing alcohol, because you see that a lot uh, on the street. Um, people get into the wet housing, into the housing first programs, and uh, they don't have to do that anymore. And I know there's a huge yeah. reduction from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in both the pilot evaluations that we did, we saw a drop in, in illicit um, alcohol use because, of course, when they are in a residential managed alcohol program, then there's provision of safer sources of alcohol and so people aren't um, having to access other sources. Um, We did just a very, just recently a a psychology student and I worked together to do just a small little sort of study to find out, you know, what were the reasons that people would drink illicit alcohol and it was mainly availability and affordability. In other words, Um, Mm -hmm. it was much easier in the neighborhood they were living in to obtain those sources and they were much cheaper than regular sources of alcohol. So, you know, in a managed alcohol program, you have, um, you're able to provide and and that is one of the, you know, rationale is to provide safer sources of, of alcohol for people to drink over regulated periods of time. Mm hmm and uh, I know it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to shoplift Listerine out of the drugstore than to try and shoplift vodka out of the liquor store because they'll have a gun at your head in the liquor store. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I did. Um, I've talked about this before, but I lived for two years in the St. Anthony residence in St. Paul, which is also wet housing, and you know, I knew a fellow there that was you know drinking two uh, bottles of Listerine every day. Um, that, that was wet housing, but it doesn't really follow the harm reduction model that uh, is used in, uh, say, Seattle or in the, the places in Canada that you're talking about. They really wanted people to uh, either transition to AA or to die. So it was <laughs> it was it was it was messed up. It was fucked up situation. They didn't really have the harm reduction element down there. And I don't know what changes they've made since I left. Jesus, it must be 20, 2000, wait, 2004 probably. And at least, no, yeah, earlier think, than that. 
Yeah, yeah. and I think what you've just given is an example of, of what I was talking about earlier around housing first and and the integration of harm reduction. And I think, you know, as I said, people can get their heads around fairly easily that people have a right to housing and we should provide them with a safe place to live. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, and I know a principle of harm reduction is we don't force, you know, people get to choose what services, but, and this has come up a couple times in our research is we've called it, you know, turning the blind eye, right? Because people say, well, I know they're using substances, but, but you know, I'm just going to pretend that I don't know. And, and what I would say and what I have said in those situations is we actually can't do that. We have evidence of, of what is effective. So it's not that we're forcing people to accept strategies, but we're making available so that they can make the choice around the kinds of prevention, harm reduction and prevention strategies that that they can access. And so having available, not just knowing that they use substances, but also having available services. So some of our housing, for example, will have available lots of, they'll have available uh, harm reduction supplies for injecting, for safer crack use, um, that people can actually access in, in the building that they live. Um, you know, I think the managed alcohol program for in specific cases, that's an example of, you know, integrating harm reduction into a housing program. So, um, and I think Vancouver is a good example of that because it's, you know, the managed alcohol program is part of a housing first complex. Um, and so people are being housed um, with the, um, uh, avail, you know, with the option of being on that program. Nobody has to go on that program, so there's still, you know, readiness and choice involved. Um, we're not forcing people to do that, but we're also not turning a blind eye to what's going on in a housing um, setting um, and pretending that we don't know when, when actually we do know and we also know what to do to prevent harms for that. So I think that's the kind of quintessential quintessential issue that we're facing right now in in housing first is is the is the you know prevention of harms of of substance use as part of a housing first strategy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now one of the other things that uh, we see and it's been it's well talking about heroin-assisted treatment um, that is available in Amsterdam, in Switzerland, um, some other places in Europe. I know that they've, they ran trials in uh, Canada, and recently they just approved that the people that were in the trials could continue to get their medication. Um, but, you know, some people, you know, there's some conservative people uh, that think, wow, I give them free heroin, put them in a house, uh, give them free housing. Isn't, wouldn't that be, uh, you know, just paradise? And wouldn't everybody just, uh, you know, want to do nothing but shoot heroin all day? Um, but it's not that way, is it? No. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, the heroin-assisted um, therapy program is is for individuals who have a – long-term dependency on heroin. Um, I think the outcomes and findings from that research has been extremely um, positive, particularly in terms of, of reductions in crime, for example. Um, so I think what you're doing is providing a more, a safer, more humane way to approach a problem of dependency um, for, for people. And, you know, it, I mean, I think when we look at any of the harm reduction strategies, there's sort of this element that people think, well, we're just enabling people, right? Or we're just sort of, it's all mm -hmm. just a party. It's, it's not a party. It is, um, we have people who, um, you know, wonderfully bright, intelligent people who, who have dependencies. And so we need to look at what's an appropriate, compassionate, dignified response um, to that, and I think you know we have 
as I said sort of earlier, a large body of evidence about a different about a range of harm reduction strategies um, that can be of of assistance to people. Um, and can I just want to I I just want to mention this piece because we haven't touched on it yet, and that is that mm-hmm. harm reduction. When I think of it as as a, a philosophy or approach and set of strategies, it's it's providing you know supplies, resources, uh, programs that prevent harms. But and I think maybe this particularly has been emphasized in our nursing profession. It's all also about the relationship and it's developing relationships with people, and so. While someone may be um, using harm reduction services, it also becomes that opportunity for them to make a different choice if they want to and when they want to. So the either or that I think sometimes gets set up, like it's either harm reduction or abstinence, it's actually harm reduction and. And Mm -hmm. it's harm reduction and what do, you know, because what I notice is, is when people, um, you know, if they've got dependencies or problematic use, once that kind of gets managed and stabilized it, through a, a harm reduction strategy, so if we took the managed alcohol programs, and, and we really saw this in one of our evaluations is people said, you know, I've got hope. I've got hope for something different for the future. I don't quite know always what it is, but, you know, I've got a place to live now. I'm, you know, I'm reconnecting with my family. And this particularly comes out of the managed alcohol research that we did. So there's this opportunity for people to make different choices. So it's not just like, here, here you go. Here's your heroin. Here's your safe supplies. Here's your alcohol here's whatever that is not that is only a piece of it um it's much it encompasses much more um in terms of people's opportunities to get stabilized to to make a different choice um in their lives if that's what they want to do or if they see that you know this is the quality of life that that is much better than the quality of life i had in this program then then i think that spins up these possibilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, abstinence is always abstinence is a great form of harm reduction. Um, harm reduction programs always have abstinence as an option, um, but it's the difference between the harm reduction programs and the other other programs that call themselves abstinence. They're the ones that say we're going to force abstinence on people against their will, whether they like it or not. And that doesn't succeed. But we see people all the time answering. That's the essence. We see people all the time answering. And that's the essence of. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I said that's. And that's the essence of the problem in my mind around harm reduction and and abstinence is we we act as if they're all encompassing when they're actually extremely complementary. Um, and I like the way you put it, you know, abstinence is an option in a harm reduction program. That's, people mm-hmm. can make that choice. And when we track people in harm reduction programs, we see all the time uh, that there are individuals that are opting for abstinence. And, you know, the longer they're in the harm reduction program, the more likely they are to either opt for abstinence or for some controlled form of use that is that actually gets rid of all the harm, um, you know, But all the time we see people, um, you know, they say, but they don't necessarily join AA or a twelve step program. They just say, you know, I'm I'm done. I don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and people, you know, for whatever you know, at whatever point um, we'll be able to manage, you know, I mean, all of us every day manage our own use of many things, including, for many of us, including substances. And so, you know, we do need to look at what what has happened for people, um, you know, and, and how is, 
alcohol or illicit drugs being used as a way, as a strategy, as a way of coping. And, and what are, you know, and sometimes where you need to start is just keeping people safe until you can really focus on some of those um, more root causes. So, you know, that's where I really saw, you know, such an important role for harm reduction right from the beginning of, you know, the work that I was doing. Because as I told you at the beginning, I didn't go in, I wasn't studying harm reduction. It emerged as a really important feature of of helping people to facilitate their access to, to healthcare services, taking that kind of approach. So, um, you know, we have to, I think we have to think about how harm reduction and abstinence fit together as opposed to how are they always in opposition. <laughs> yeah, I don't see them in opposition at all. It's, it's the attitude. What I see in opposition are the people that say, okay, we know what's best and we're going to force you to do things our way versus the people that say, what do you want to do? How can we help you achieve the goals that you want to achieve? And that's the dichotomy, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think in the harm reduction approach, we we are, you know, hopefully – taking that approach as well. You know, what what are your goals? What do you want to achieve? I mean, I clearly see that in the housing first. It's, it's you know, about your choices. And, you know, if you're saying I'm continuing to use substances, then, then how do we make that safer mm-hmm. in that? Well, yeah. mm-hmm. I also saw that very clearly when I uh, was in direct service doing needle exchange, you know, um, it's you know we're we're supplying you with clean syringes. We're saying thank you for using them, and we're so, if you turn in any used ones, we say thank you for that. But we're also there uh, because you know after people use the needle exchange services for a while, they then they will start saying things like, I don't know if I want to use heroin anymore. I want to find out about methadone. I want to find out about buprenorphine. I want to find out about drug treatment. And but you know they're coming up with that themselves. It's not that we're saying. You know, this is something that you ought to do. It's we're just saying what you're doing is really good because you're keeping yourself safe and you're keeping other people safe. And when people are yeah. ready, they will be ready to move and they will ask themselves and then they will be motivated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think a wonderful actually example of what you're talking about, Ken, in Canada is um, Insight, the supervised injection site, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. you know after people have. Um, you know, injected, they go into the lounge, the chill-out area, and that is staffed by peers and it's staffed by um, counselors because exactly, those are exactly the moments when people might say, I, you know, I don't want to do this anymore or I'm ready for something different. And I think you've probably seen the evidence, you know, around the referrals and, and the outcomes related to people moving to um, into detox um, as a consequence of, of that. And, and you know, I think in all fairness, too, people may choose detox and it may have, you know, a very good benefit. And then, you know, that may be, then they may make a different choice um, at that point. But I think, you know, what we're talking about is, is such a good, ex- I think Insight is such a good example of that where people have um, said, I want to do something different. And we've seen that in the managed alcohol programs where people have said, um, you know, in some of the programs they said, you know, I actually, I, I don't want to drink anymore. I, or I want to, mm-hmm. or I want to take days off drinking because they can make, mm-hmm. they're in an environment where they can make a different choice. Um, and they can make choices that, that work for them. And I think, you know, it's about saying, what would you like to do? What are your goals? Um, you know, as part of that kind of approach. Well, I know in Seattle that they've been uh, tracking quantities from day one, and they've seen huge reductions in the quantities uh, con- of alcohol consumed by the residents there. Um, and I, I think it's down on now to almost half of what it was originally. So, uh, you know, people are taking more and more days off. They're drinking less. 
they're like, and, you know, you talk to them. It's like, I'm so happy when I was on the street, if I bought a bottle of vodka, I had to drink the whole thing right away so nobody would steal it from me. Now I don't have to do that mm-hmm. anymore. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, they don't have to worry about what their next drink's coming from. They don't have to worry about being safe. Um, so they can behave in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it just makes so much sense when you think about it. Well, we're running out of time here. So what would you like to leave us with today? I think I would really um, like to leave people with the importance of sort of reflecting on their own attitudes towards substance use and really reflecting on are those attitudes that we've learned, that we've been taught, that have been reinforced maybe by our drug policy, and and how how do we sort of, you know, look beyond those attitudes to to see who are who are the people and and what what is needed that is safe and and dignified and compassionate and you know where how do we understand the role that harm reduction services play in that and and i do think we have to start with sort of reflecting as a society on our on our own attitudes and and policies in this area um in order to really people fairly and and respectfully so so that would be those would be my sort of parting thoughts okay thank you very much for being our guest today bernadette Polly. thank you ken take care bye-bye okay everyone we'll see you next time it's going to be a couple weeks before i do a show i have final exams but we'll have one in a couple weeks okay everybody bye <laughs>